You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Human trafficking is often thought of as something that only happens in foreign countries or to those who are uneducated, perhaps poor. These are dangerous concepts to hold on to. My next guest grew up in suburbia in an idyllic neighborhood, a straight-A student, self-described nerd, a young activist. No one would have thought Alexandra Stevenson would end up the victim of human sex trafficking, especially Alexandra who only came to realize she was trafficked 10 years after her escape from her groomer. It's a harrowing story with a lot of lessons we all need to sit up and pay attention to. In this podcast, Alexandra shares how sex assault as a child led her straight into the arms of a trafficker as a late teen. She also shares the five stages of grooming, something we should all know how to identify, and what it's like to parent young children with CPTSD. I'm largely silent in this podcast because the story is simultaneously horrific, uplifting, and educational. Meet Alexandra Stevenson, aka The Laughing Survivor. Alexandra, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I think this is such an important discussion to have. But before we can go much further, we have to start with your story. So can you start at the beginning and share with people how you ended up a victim victim of human trafficking? Absolutely. Um, And thank you for starting there, because I think it's important. One of the most important things I talk about is prevention. And we really can't understand how we can prevent this if we don't understand how it happens. Um, So... I was trafficked at the age of 20, but I start my story before that because I didn't just drop on this earth at 20 years old. Um, Things happened before that that resulted in vulnerabilities, which is how I ended up getting trafficked. So I actually started um, my advocacy and unbeknownst to me, anti-trafficking work when I was 11 years old. Um, My teacher read myself, my class, a story about a young boy named Craig Kielberger who had started Free the Children. And he, it was just a small chapter of a small organization at that point. And my friends and I decided we wanted to get involved. And we started the first Oakville chapter of Free the Children when we were 11 years old. We went door-to-door petitioning um, to help free kids from child labor in other countries. And we collected money for school and health kits. I'm pretty sure I spent my first school dance, um, not in fact at the dance, but in fact, packing school and health kits uh, to send overseas. So I was what you would consider like a good kid, you know. I was raised in Oakville, Ontario. My parents were together. Um, The area we were raised in was idyllic. They actually filmed uh, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen, like down the street from me. I remember going to watch it be filmed. So I'm painting this picture because I really want people to understand that trafficking isn't just that thing that happens to those people or over there, right? It can happen to anyone. So I'm on this really good path. I do gymnastics, swimming, advocacy work. I'm a babysitter, all of that. And then at about 13 years old, my best friend's uncle began sexually assaulting me. And this went on for many years. And it was this unresolved trauma. I didn't tell tell anyone about it for quite some time. 
But what I did start doing was drugs. And I started smoking weed and then uh, doing all sorts of, you know, ketamine into ecstasy into finally landing doing methamphetamine by the time I was about 18, 19. When I was 20, um, a well-known drug dealer in my area got out of jail and I knew who he was and he had heard about who I was and we started dating. And to me, it seemed like, I have to laugh saying this, but it seemed like a match made in heaven. You know, I was on this path of just partying, doing drugs, and now I was dating, you know, the drug dealer who was well-respected and well-known. And when I started dating him, I went from being, you know, just another chick in the drug scene to being fairly respected. Um, and or it, it tasted, it felt like respect. I don't know that I would call it that nowadays, but it felt like it then. Um, and at the time, my boyfriend, you know, we're dating for a little while, doing drugs. And one day he turns to me and he says, you know, we're doing more drugs than we're selling. We need, we need money. Are you going to help me? And I thought, Absolutely. You know, we're we're partners. We're business partners. I'm going to help you. You know, we're partners in everything. Bad boys for life. Um, and so he said, well, what if at house parties or bars, like you distract people and I can see what I can steal and we'll pawn it for money. And I thought, yeah, great. Absolutely. I can do that. Um, so that's how it all started. Now, it developed really quickly. And I can tell you when you're doing drugs and you're awake, like 24-7, a relationship develops what would normally take six months takes six days so this all happened very quickly and then he said you know I want to get maybe into the bedroom at the party or like the master bedroom can you take these this guy over here and take him into this room so I know he's not going to bother me and it was around that time that I was like oh like I don't really want to do that what do you what is it you want me to do um but as soon as I showed some resistance (laughs) I remember the script flipped like that. He turned to me and he said, oh, well, if you're not going to do this, do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them? And I remember just being so confused because what do you mean I've been stealing from them? Like we've been stealing from them. But of course, he was the one with the reputation, the respect. I was just the wifey. So people would believe what he said. And as soon as that first time that I had to acquiesced to to these demands because I was scared. I didn't know what happened. I, I was ashamed. Once that boundary was crossed, there was no more boundaries in sight. There was nothing. So what I thought was like, okay, I'll do this this one time. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Turned into constantly requesting me to to distract people in a bedroom. And then it turned into you know, we were at a strip club because that's where we used to hang out. And he, you know, I'm standing there and I literally felt him pick me up and put me on stage. And the last thing I heard before I was up on stage was him saying to me, don't get down until you've made me some money. And for me, what I haven't shared up until this point is that our relationship was very violent, almost from the get go. There was violence all around us. At first it was directed at other people, but it wasn't long until it was directed at me. So in those words, I heard the promises of violence if I didn't do exactly what he wanted me to do. Um, And again, things I that came to develop more later, like I said, we were doing drugs and then we were drinking and all partying and all of that. 
And it would happen a few times where I'd wake up in a motel room and not really sure how I got there and not a good memory of things. And he would be telling me, oh, you're so lucky you have me. You're such a mess. You can't hold your alcohol. And I'm thinking, I have one drink. Like, what is, I don't understand. And then I found out later that he was actually drugging my drinks and then taking pictures of me, which he was selling to his friends, um, I guess, or to people. Um, I am forever grateful that this was 2007 and his flip phone did not have great picture taking qualities because I don't know where those pictures are and I'm not digging into it to find out. Um, but all of these things are things that I had no idea counted as human trafficking. I didn't know that me using my body to make money for my boyfriend is what counted as human trafficking. I thought it was domestic violence and a series of bad decisions on my part, truly. You're telling me this story now, and I have to ask, where is your family in all of this? Yeah, so my, the, my parents were together until I was 18 or 19. Um, the sexual assault that happened by my friend's uncle, um, I didn't share with anyone for a multitude of reasons, many of them the same ones you hear from many people. I was ashamed. You know, I was 13. There was a good-looking 30-year-old man who was interested in me. I was also kind of like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm special. Uh, my friend whose family it was, there was tons of girls in that family. And when I did start to back out, he had told me, you know, if, if you tell anyone or if you put a stop to this, look at all the other girls. I'll go after one of them. And I thought, well, I'm already damaged. So I'm not, I, I don't want anyone else to get hurt. So at least if I have his attention, he won't go after anyone else. So my family was together during that time and I didn't share anything with them. When it came to the next part of the story where I was trafficked, my parents had split up. My mom was living uh, on her own. I was living in her basement. Um, and I was working a full-time job. I was 20 years old. My mom didn't really keep close tabs on me. Um, I did have a good relationship with my parents. And I had always been a pretty good kid. So I was kind of living this double life. I was managing two tanning salons, working a full-time job going to work, you know, talking to customers, upselling, tanning lotions and all of that. And then at night, I was living this double life where I was partying and doing meth and ending up on stage at a strip club and whatnot. So my family really had no idea until I finally let them in, you know, years later. So you thought you were a victim of domestic abuse. At what stage did you come to know you were now being trafficked? not for another 10 years. So when I escaped my trafficker, I had a series of things happened. One, I was in a car accident um, and I was really banged up and, and bruised and I was unable to be of any use to my boyfriend at the time. Um, and those like several days or a week, I can't even remember, uh, gave me that distance where I was suddenly like, maybe this isn't my life. Maybe this doesn't have to be my life. Maybe I can have another choice. And I decided to, I had applied to school on a whim months before and then sort of forgotten about it. And so I went back through those applications and I originally decided to go to, I think it's St. Is it St. Clair College in Windsor? 
I was going to go there because I had friends there. Um, I went to visit the campus and I got pictures of me there. He had had me followed. Um, so Windsor wasn't safe. And then I remembered that in a moment of vulnerability, he had shared with me that he had been in jail in Ottawa and couldn't go there because people wanted him dead because he, I think he had ratted on someone. And so I thought, well, light bulb, like a cartoon above my head, you know, oh my goodness, why have I not thought of this? I'm going to Ottawa. My big brother had actually just moved to Ottawa as well the year prior. So um, that was another like, okay, I'm going to be around my brother. Great. So I moved to Ottawa. Um, and that's kind of how I got away from him. I went in, I did, uh, I started at Algonquin College in a child and youth worker program. I ended up after one year, I was the class rep. I had straight A's. I went back to that, like my core nerdy self who was an advocate and just wanted to read and sit in the front of class. Um, and I switched into the University of Ottawa, uh, CRIM program with a small scholarship. I was doing awesome um, until he showed up. But even then, so he showed up, if I remember correctly, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, 2000, March 2009, um, which is when I finally went to the police. So we had a whole police investigation. I still didn't know I was trafficked. Then he ended up uh, getting himself stabbed to death or being stabbed to death in 2011. Still no idea I was trafficked. It wasn't until 2017, if I have my dates correct, where I was actually living in Wyoming at the time, made a new friend who was working in the anti-trafficking movement. And I said, hey, I don't know anything about trafficking, but I've worked in the helping field. You know, I've worked in domestic violence shelters with offenders, with victims, all of these things for about 10 years now. So I'd love to learn about this and, and help. And as we got to know each other, I shared my story with her. And she was the one who turned to me and said, what you're telling me, what you're explaining to me is trafficking. This is human trafficking. And it blew my mind because how the, hell, how the heck can I not know? I've worked in this field for 10 years. There was a criminal investigation against my abuser. I am, you know, well-educated uh, with a career path here. And I have no idea. If I don't know, how in the heck is anyone supposed to know or understand what trafficking is? And it was with that knowledge that I really jumped into the anti-trafficking movement and started my work here. I'm I, I'm sort of like stuck here where to go next. Your story is, um, it's mind-blowing. And I'm sure people listening are going to be surprised to hear that this is trafficking. Uh, I want to ask you before we move on to this, I, want, I have some very specific questions in mind, but I want to ask you, why the laughing survivor? Oh, that's a good question. Um, because laughing is what got me through everything. Um, you know, I went, I, I am, I have a team of mental health professionals who I adore and help me live my life and do the work I do. Prior to finding this team, I've been in and out of, um, trauma care and it was constantly suggested to me, um, religion and yoga were the two things that just kept, they kept trying to foist upon me and I am not you know, denigrating either of those choices. They've helped a lot of people, but for me, it just, it wasn't helping. And every time I tried to say I was a victim of something, they, I'd get told, you know, you're not a victim, you're a survivor. And then survivor started to feel like this, you know, thinking of the David statue, you know, except like this regal 
beautiful, quiet, you know, everything survivor just felt very heavy. And there was no place for laughter in it. And laughter is what got me through and laughing at inappropriate things that other people probably don't find funny, but it's, it's what got me to survive. So that's, that's where the laughing survivor came from. I want people to be willing to talk about difficult subjects. And I find that by injecting a little bit of laughter into it, whether they're laughing at me or with me, I'm never quite sure, but they're more willing to listen to hard topics when there is a little bit of laughter. And that's exactly what I felt. I was more willing to face my trauma head on when I could do it with laughter. Most people go through really traumatic events like this and, you know, go on with their life. They don't want to talk about it anymore. They don't want to be out there anymore. You have done the complete opposite. You're, you're out there you're on all the social channels, you're educating people. What drives that for you? I am taking control over my story. I, and it's no longer a story about this horrible thing that a horrible person did to me or a story about how the criminal justice system failed me or about all the parts where I could have, you know, veered and instead I went straight. It's a story about bad things that happen that I now get to use as teachable moments. It's my story, and I am taking control back over it, and I'm making it mean something. And that's what gets me through living in it every day. Let's move on to some of those teachable moments then, because people are listening. They're hearing this story. I'm sure their jaws are on the ground right now. Uh, But, you know, a lot of people listening will have kids at home. And they will want to know what to look for, uh, share with their kids what to look for. So what does grooming look like? You say there's five stages. What does that look like? Yeah, so um, there are five stages of grooming the way I teach them. And you can look this up online and the different stages may be called different things. And I'm actually doing some research now into where I feel the stages best break down. But I'll go over them really quickly because... However you label them, it's all kind of the same storyline to follow. So the first one, identifying the victim. A predator or trafficker will identify their victim, and they do this by identifying vulnerabilities. So they're going to pick up on if a kid, uh, and I'm going to speak to kids right now because I'm speaking to parents, but it's not only kids who are groomed, but obviously they're a hugely vulnerable population. So traffickers will identify vulnerabilities like low self-confidence, a lack of parental supervision, um, previous trauma, or socioeconomic factors that might make them vulnerable. Um, They often reach out online. Sometimes they'll blanket message every kid that says they attend, you know, any place high school or whatever, and see who answers them back or adds them as a friend. And they also can find vulnerabilities by what we post online. Um, I shared um, before uh, that, you know, somebody might post something without realizing, like posting a selfie saying, like, felt cute, might delete later. And right there you're saying you might have have a bit of low self-confidence or you want someone to tell you you're pretty. Um, Another one that can be obvious that kids post is, you know, I I hate my small town. It's so boring here. I've never been anywhere fun. Well, guess what? A trafficker is going to see that and then go, hey, all I have to do is offer them a trip to Toronto or Vancouver or something and I'm in. 
So that's the first one. They're identifying the victim and identifying vulnerabilities within that victim. And I just want to I just want to pause you there, Alexandra, just to just to really drive that point home that we are online sharing our vulnerabilities all day, every day, not just kids, adults, too. Uh, so this is a conversation I think that needs to be robust and um, repetitive <laughs> with, yes. with with people in your house. Uh, because we all share our vulnerabilities. Uh, we saw this recently, not in the same vein, of course, but uh, recently there was a musician who was murdered because they shared his location. And in real time, somebody showed up to kill him. So these are, this is no joke on the internet. Absolutely. There, I think we can't erase vulnerabilities. We all have them. Whether you're 16 or 60, you have a vulnerability. Um, more than one. What we can do is recognize them because when we know that, you know, for me, I'm pretty vulnerable about how I look, for example. So I know that somebody telling me I'm pretty is going to immediately drop my defenses and I'm going to want to talk to them more. By knowing that, when somebody goes ahead and tells me I'm pretty, I can at least turn that little light bulb on in the back of my head and say, okay, they may mean that genuinely, great. They may not, great. But I am aware of how it affects me. I am aware that it drops my defenses because I'm aware that this is something I'm working on. Those are, that's how we can talk to kids about vulnerabilities, not get rid of them, is acknowledge them. So you know when, they're when someone's trying to use them against you. Excellent. Well, okay. I'm sorry I had to interrupt there just because that was, I just really think that first point was so important. If you could go on though, please, and please share the next, the next grooming tactic. Absolutely. So after they've identified the victim, they're going to build trust with that victim and they're going to start filling needs as well. So building trust is learning the relationship. This part is often called love bombing. Um, if you've heard that term, it's where somebody just showers you with praise, attention, gifts. It feels awesome. I don't care who you are. It feels awesome to be showered with that much praise, attention, and gifts. Um, unless you're really, really in tune with the fact that somebody may be doing this to manipulate you. Then you can pick up on the manipulation and maybe it doesn't feel as awesome. But if you're not in tune with that, Somebody who is showering you with attention, who's asking you all of the questions about you. What are your favorite things? What do you like? What do you dislike? Who are your friends? What do you do after school? What do you journal about? Like literally everything. They want to know everything about you. And then they're actually going to start filling the needs. So if they find a child who feels, you know, complains a lot about how their sibling gets all the attention, then maybe they'll fill needs by becoming a bit of a parental figure asking if they've eaten enough, drank enough, what grades they got, have they studied for a test. Um, if maybe all their friends have boyfriends or girlfriends, then they have an in being an intimate partner, uh, you know, taking a relationship to that next level. If they have socioeconomic needs, maybe they can provide shelter or new expensive things, shoes, purses, that sort of stuff, because they wouldn't otherwise be able to access this. This actually, so... They fill the needs not just physically with things, but emotionally as well. And this creates a dependency on the victim to their trafficker. You've got a captive audience here. Keep going, please. <laughs> I can do that. So next is isolation. And this is actually where we see a lot of the movies um, or stereotypes get it really wrong. Because when we think of 
isolation in a human trafficking sense, we think of somebody locked up in a basement or chained to and in an empty cement room or with a dirt floor or something like that. We're really thinking that physical isolation. And again, I'm never saying it never happens, but more what happens is emotional isolation. So the trafficker, now that they've gotten to know their victim, they've created that bond and that relationship with them. They're going to use uh, tactics like blowing up little fights with friends or family into a much bigger deal. So they're victim will share, you know, so-and-so said they'd meet me after school and they didn't. And instead of being like, oh, that's rough, they may turn around and say, well, they never actually listen to you, do they? They don't even care about you. They couldn't be bothered to show up. Wow, that friend doesn't actually care about you. It's a good thing you have me. I really care about you. Or parents, you know, every parent is can't play with their kid all the time or can't you know, hey, hey, mom, watch this. Yeah, great. I have four things on the stove, laundry, like all of this. I can't watch you right now. That's not a, a mark against parents, but a trafficker can say, you know what? Your mom doesn't ever pay attention to you, does she? You know, she really just has better things to do than sh listen to that cool journal entry. Why don't you read it to me? Because I know how important it is to you and I want to hear what you're writing. I know how important that is, right? So that isolation is really going to be that emotional isolation. They may use a little bit of physical isolation, which could look like, hey, start coming, hanging out in my town or with my friends, or don't spend so much time with your friends. They're so babyish. My friends are more mature. Let's hang out, you know, in Toronto or downtown or something like that. We're not seeing that physical isolation, like I said, locked in a basement. We're seeing it just being drawn away from support systems, whatever they may be. Then, and this is where things, people can kind of debate, I guess, on what the topics uh, are or what these stages are actually called. But what I'd like to inject here is a stage that I'm calling confusion. And this is where the trafficker really sends mixed messages. Um, and all this love and attention they've been pouring on their victim, they suddenly withdraw. So... They stop answering texts, stop asking questions, stop showing up to pick them up from school or whatever their relationship looked like. And the victim is going to go, wait, like, what? What did I do wrong? Why? Why? Like, did I do? So How can I fix it? I'll do anything to fix it. I'll do anything to get that love back, right? To get that attention back. And it's right here where the trafficker goes, I got you, right? Because so for me in my story, it was, I was trapped and I, you know, when uh, my boyfriend turned around and said, hey, are we going to start doing this? I was like, yeah, I, absolutely. This is going to make you realize how cool I am, how down I am, right? I'm absolutely going to do it. So then when he started saying, like, you're not doing enough, I was like, well, I'll show you. I can do more. How I want to do it. Um, and with kids, you know, they can use things like coercion. If you loved me, you would do this. Um, they're going to use that confusion and the desperation to really make their victim do, like, beg, basically, to do anything, beg to be exploited in some cases. Um, and then so that final stage is that exploitation stage where they turn around and say, you know, like I said, if you love me, you'll do this. Or all those things I bought you, like, they're not free, you know. You're going to have to pay that back somehow. Or maybe they have photos or videos that you sent or they took. And, you know, if you don't do this, I'm, I'm going to be forced to send these, these videos to your parents or to your school 
or something. And so whatever they do, if the if the victim is still somewhat resistant, they're going to break down that resistance using that coercion or manipulation as well. We also see that traffickers will, especially traffickers posing as romantic partners, will use um, uh, attaching money to sex early on before exploitation. So they may um, become intimate with their victim. They're posing as a boyfriend, right? So maybe they fool around. And then afterwards, babe, you know, here's 50 bucks. You wanted to get your nails done. Why don't you go get your nails done? They're not explicitly saying I'm giving you cash for whatever intimate act we just did, but they're starting to connect in the victim's brain sexual activity with receiving cash. It's quite, um, I called them master predators earlier. I say that with purpose. It's predatory, it's manipulative, and it's purposeful. You know, I'm I'm sitting here listening. I wonder, do you mean obviously you have, you know, lots of education behind you now. But if somebody had said to you all those years ago, these are this is what's happening. These are the steps of grooming. Would you have identified with those things or would you have said, no, that's not me? That is a good question. I think if someone had brought this up to me while I was, you know, in the depths of it, I probably would have said that's not me. Because admitting that it is, is admitting that you are not in control. And that is a terrifying thing to admit. So a lot, we find a lot of trafficking victims don't realize they're being trafficked and say, you know, I'm having fun. This is great. I love this. I'm doing it because I want to. Because admitting that you are being fully controlled by another human being is something that is really hard for your brain to like wrap around. So your brain is going to do all sorts of mental gymnastics to tell you a different story. And that's where I would have been. Having said that, if I had known this, if I had been taught this in school by my parents, by after school programs, TV, where like, you know, inundated the way kids these days are inundated with information, about the stages of grooming, about what manipulation looks like, and what it looks like when someone uses your vulnerabilities against you, then maybe I would have spotted it. Maybe I would have spotted it early on with the man, my friend's uncle, who sexually assaulted me because I was hugely um, shy. I had low self-confidence. I was a big nerd with a giant unibrow and, you know, all of these things that kids made fun of me for. And so when a good-looking 30-year-old man is telling me I'm the most beautiful girl in the room, I didn't see that as manipulation. I saw that as love. I guess my question then is if for the people who are witnessing this happening to somebody or know somebody that this is happening, how can you get them to understand that this is happening to them? Yeah, that's... Um, so one thing I will say uh, that I try and hammer home all the time is most people uh, don't accept help for whatever thing the first time it's offered. Usually, you know, it needs to be offered a few times or you need to be really desperately in need of help. So if you think your friend uh, or child, well, child is a little different, but friend, if you think your friend is in a bad situation, stick around, keep offering help because their threshold may be 
27 offers of help before they're able to reach back. But you're not going to get to to the 27th offer if you haven't been shut down 26 times. So keep offering help because every time you do and every time it comes from a new person, whether it's a healthcare worker or a law enforcement officer or a friend or an aunt or an uncle or grandparent, someone saying, hey, I see you and I think you're in a bad situation. You can deny that all you want, but all of those little words, they're going to take root. And when that person is able to acknowledge what's taking root, they're going to see that that information has come at them a couple times now or more than a couple times. And it's hard to deny, you know, 26 people or 26 instances of someone saying you look like you're in a bad situation or I think you're a danger or something like that. 26 times of that and you you might start to listen, right? Everyone has a different threshold. One time, maybe not, but keep trying. Keep offering the help. Keep sending, you know, memes, resources, uh, being there, saying, I'm not judging you. I'm here to help. Let me know, whatever it is. Eventually, hopefully they'll re- that reach back. You're now on, you know, a speaker circuit. You're sharing on social media. Uh, you're, you're all over the place. But do you work with victims of human trafficking on a one-on-one uh, level? No. Um, I don't. I, two reasons. One, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to do so. Um, in doing this work and living in my own story and retelling it all the time, I have had to figure out what I can handle and what I can't. And I am not good at separating my story from someone else's story. Um, and not wanting to just dive in and wrap my arms around this person, invite them to come live with me and take care of them in every way possible. And I can't do that. I have two small children at home. Uh Also, you can't take in everybody who has a, you know, sad story. Um, So I can't, for my own emotional well-being, I can't do that. And also, I find, well, survivor care is so, so, so important and so necessary. There is a huge... uh, missing chunk of work being done in the prevention piece and at the end of the day survivor care is like i said it's so important but it exists because of failed prevention or non-existent prevention and i want to get upstream of the issue and i don't want to you know be helping people once they're already been traumatized i want to help people not be traumatized and not be trafficked and learn more about what it is and how they can, you know, help their own kids and their own families and their own communities. Um, and that's that's where I feel like my calling in my place is. I, I have to agree with you. I think you're doing incredible work, uh, you know, wherever you're sharing. You, you're a mom. How does this, how does your experience impact being a mother? Oh, I am still learning the answer to that one um, and in ways that I never would have expected. So uh, I have CPTSD, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and there are some things that I know about myself. I have, I am hypervigilant. I have a hair trigger startle response. 
Um, I get overwhelmed by loud noises and sudden movements. I have toddlers. Can you imagine how this does not mesh very well? <laughs> um, so those are all things that I just have to lean on my husband. And, you know, we have long talks about when I'm getting triggered, how I can, okay, I need to walk away. I need to take some deep breaths. Um, and a lot of it I model for my kids. I say, your loud voices are really making mummy very anxious right now. I'm going to start practicing my deep breaths in your quiet corner. If you'd like to join me, you can, but the quiet corner is where we're quiet. Um, I don't want to hide from them and hide the parts of me that are damaged and need work because I want them to see me working through it. Um, I tell them I'm in therapy. I tell them mummy goes to therapy. My kids are still very young. They're 18 months and three years old. So everything in the age appropriate way they can understand. But there's a couple instances my that have shocked me uh, with motherhood. One of them, my toddler was having a complete meltdown. He was maybe two and a half years old and he grabbed my throat and he wasn't trying to grab my throat. He's two and a half. He was grabbing it, whatever, and trying to push grab whatever toddler meltdown. Okay. But when he grabbed my throat, I wanted to pick him up and throw him. Like my reaction of, oh my God, I'm in danger. I need to be away from this. Um, the only thing I can say is I think my mom instinct was like a hair stronger than my trauma response because I managed to to just shove him away from me and like curl up in a ball in a fetal position and try and get a hold of myself instead of throw him the way my body was saying, like, you need to get this thing away from you. I felt exactly so unsafe in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that was a huge surprise to me was actually potty training. Um, I We potty trained my three-year-old at the beginning of the summer, and I was ready, and I am self-proclaimed nerd. I did all the research. I found a course. I followed it. We were going to do the three-day thing where they're totally naked the first day, and then you slowly introduce whatever. I'm not fussy about mess all of that. I didn't care if he was going to make a mess on the floor. That didn't bother me. But when we were explaining to him, you know, you're not going to wear pants today so we can seal, you know, when there's pee and all of that. And he had, he broke down crying saying, no, mommy, I want my pants. Please give me my pants. And that, like, I just had a flashback and went into like almost a catatonic state for a little bit. My husband was like, I have no idea what's happening to you, but you need to go over there and calm yourself um, or more snap out of it. And the whole weekend, every time I thought I'd snapped out of it, it was just still bubbling there. And I think I had more meltdowns than my toddler. Um, and I was not expecting that. And talking it through with my trauma team, my my mental health team, they're saying, you know, your body is hearing don't touch me or I, I want my pants on and thinking of your own trauma. Your son is just like, you're changing things on me. We wear pants. Why are we not wearing pants? He's not feeling traumatized. Your body's not registering that. So every time I think, I'm like, ah, yes, I have this figured out. This is how trauma affects me. This is how I, you know, take care of myself or whatever it is. Some With motherhood, it's like wiping the slate like clean and I, everything is coming up and I am learning along the way. I um, joke around that I'll write, I'll be writing a sequel to my first book uh, called I Mom in the Face of Trauma because there's so much, just straight from getting pregnant where you're expected to like drop trow in front of strangers 
on a monthly basis and just be okay with that. All of that is, it, it has been a trip. Definitely. Yeah, I'm listening to this thinking you have much more educating to do uh, down the road as you work through this because you're learning as you go right now um, how to how to be a mother after such extreme trauma. Alexandra, you're you're incredible. I've just I've been largely silent through this whole podcast because (laughs) your story's amazing and you are sharing such great information with people. So we have to wrap this up, obviously, but I want people to find you. So where can they do that? Absolutely. Thank you so much, by the way. And uh, I so appreciate the platform and a chance to talk to you and, and share some of this. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at The Laughing Survivor, on TikTok by the same name, The Laughing Survivor, uh, my website, thelaughingsurvivor.com. I... Uh, yeah, bear with me as I'm learning social media and how to use it. It's not my strong suit, but I am I'm learning how to do it. And I am over here on TikTok and uh, yeah, figuring it out. So I love getting DMs. I love uh, questions and people asking me, hey, can you teach more about this? It gives me ideas for content and what people want to learn about. So if you have questions, please follow, reach out, and I will do my absolute best to get back to everyone who has a specific question so I can um, involve you in this conversation because that's the end goal, right? Let's have conversations about this. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I'm going to put all of this information in the liner notes of the podcast. Alexandra, I'm going to have you back when you write that next book. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Candice. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to share it with others as it may save a life. Also be sure to subscribe to What She Said Talk with Candace Sampson on your favorite podcast provider so you never miss an episode. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, don't miss what she said on the radio weekly in Toronto, Ottawa, Surrey, and Sylvan Lake. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.